Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. It's your host, Addis JD3, and I am fresh off of a trip. Um, I say trip like it was a vacation. It wasn't. It was a conference. Um, I'm a part of a leadership program through ASTO for my public health folks or non-public health folks who aren't familiar with what that is. That's the Association of State and Tribal Health Organizations. Um, so think of all your state health departments and the territories and the tribes, all those groups um, coming together in effort to, of course, advance equity. But I'm a member of the inaugural class of the diverse executives leading in public health. And we had our first in-person meeting. Um, it was great. It was refreshing. It was validating. It was affirming. And I'm glad to be able to be in fellowship with those folks. So this this shout out goes to all my cohort members within Delft. Um, appreciate you all uh, creating a safe space for us to, to talk about challenges that only we would encounter and being able to come up, come up with solutions for those. And also, I know that you all have assigned me for um, getting the Delft podcast off the ground. We'll circle back around to that. I've got some ideas, but we, we can make that happen. So on today's episode, we are diving into the history, the prejudice, the white supremacist roots of standardized testing. And I recall very well, very clearly, um, taking the ACT, right? And some of the challenges with that for me, aside from even getting to the location to take it, was I've always been challenged with reading comprehension. Like it, it, it goes back as far as like, you know, elementary school where they would say, hey, read this story, tell us what you read. And it's not that I'm easily distracted, but it is difficult for me to, to follow kind of a through line in a story that's not relevant to me. And so there was like little Timmy walking through the woods. He saw a bear. The bear had a blue hat. And then they ask you, where was Timmy walking? And of course, it's a lot more complex than that. But I wouldn't pay attention to those details because I'm too busy wondering why is little Timmy walking through the woods? Like those are the type of things that come up for me when looking at scenarios and case studies. It's, it's, it's a long story. But what we're going to talk about today is really diving into how standardized testing came to be and why it should not be a measure of one's success or abilities because it wasn't really designed for everyone. It has a very clear purpose. And our guest today, Dalvin Ozario, is going to really dig into that. Um, Dalvin and I met through social media but we've had conversations and one day I just put it out there like, hey, I want to talk about the racist roots of standardized testing. And he was the first person to hit me back like, all right, let's do it. And so here we are. And Dalvin, I would love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners, let them know a little bit about you, and we can dive right into today's episode. Yeah, absolutely. And first, I, you know, I want to express gratitude for being able to join you here tonight. Um, I've, so I am Dalvin Osario. I am a social worker. Uh, program manager for the Montgomery County Collaboration Council. Uh, it's a local management board here in Montgomery County, Maryland, that acts as a, a middleman between county government and our local school system. So basically, 
any money that comes through the county government that then gets passed over to, to our school system for things like mentoring, uh, behavioral supports, uh, tutoring, anything under the sun that you can think of, uh, we oversee that. And I specifically oversee our racial and ethnic disparities contract, which helps to identify racial and ethnic disparities in our school systems uh, and in our criminal justice systems and juvenile justice systems. I also oversee what's known as our pathways office, which is essentially the front door for say you were a family that needed anything from a Spanish speaking therapist to a out of home placement for your kid. It would probably come through the pathways office. And then I oversee our local care team, which is a collection of eight professionals, eight representatives from each of the eight major organizations in the county. And we come together to solve the, the issues that everybody has always said for a really, really long time, like, oh, that's unsolvable. We try to solve those. Um, and I've been doing that for a while. I have a master's in social work and a master's in education policy and leadership. Uh, I'm a father to a three-year-old who I love. And I'm just, I'm excited to talk with another, you know, another man of color who's done a lot of this work. So I'm really excited. No, I'm glad to have you. And I see you, brother. Thank you. See you too. So you, you mentioned that you're a social worker. What were you doing before that? So before I was a social worker, I was actually a teacher. So I taught for four years in uh, in Washington Heights in New York. And so I taught, uh, I was an ELA teacher. I worked at a school that was uh, an underperforming school that was in receivership, receivership uh, after, and you know, for folks who don't know, after the No Child Left Behind Act, which was George Bush's signature education uh, legislation, uh, schools that were underperforming started to receive federal assistance in the terms of block grants that could be used to pay for academic supports that would help bring them out of receivership. The catch being, obviously, that once you were out of receivership, you lost that money and now you didn't have the supports that you needed to keep up the academic progress that you made. So I was a teacher and realized, listen, man, I have no idea what's going on with my kids when they leave here, right? I'm with them from eight o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. But when they come in the next day and they're exhausted, right? Or maybe they haven't had breakfast because their parent is working an overnight job and they haven't, been, and they don't make it home in time to make them breakfast, right? Like all of these things, I had, I had no idea about any of that that was going on. And as, you know, as the son of a single parent, right? My mom, I'm, first, I'm a first generation college graduate. My mom was an immigrant, came to the United States in the 80s, worked in a battery factory for 27 cents an hour in Brooklyn. Like I understood that struggle intimately and I wanted to use that, I wanted to use that knowledge to help kids who were going through a lot of the similar things. So I transitioned from being a teacher to being a program manager where they allowed me to oversee one of the programs in a couple of the schools that I had been working at. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to go full fledged and just become a social worker. And I did that for about, about four or five years before I came down to DC after I got my master's. Okay. Okay. And so you were really able to bridge kind yeah. of the social needs with the education, right? Like in a way yep. that was intentional. Absolutely. Yeah. And it wasn't, and, and it, I love the, I love the fact that you used the word intentional. I'm a very big believer in you have to, you have to demand from the universe exactly what you want, right? And I think we, I think we as people of color are scared to do that professionally at times. I think that we, we kind of go into this, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the, the standardized tests and just the pressure that, you know, American academics puts on folks who don't learn the same way, et cetera. But I know for me, I was scared to admit that I wanted to work in, in nonprofit work, right? Because my mom, again, coming from the background she came from, she was like, that's not going to pay you any money. You're not going to make a ton of money doing that. And immigrant families tend to measure, you know, worth by how much money you're making. 
But for me, I felt a sense of belonging. I felt a sense of community whenever I could help a student maybe understand a math problem that they didn't get. Or on the flip side, when I became a social worker, helping a student who was absolutely in the wrong school placement, right? Just was not getting the supports they needed and helping that student and their parents suddenly crack the Rubik's cube that is the IEP process in this in this country. That I felt I felt more successful in those moments than I did at any other point in in my career. And so it's something that I've been intentional about even as I moved up in different into different positions. Oh, we're about to have a great conversation then. Yes. <laughs> so take us back, right? What was the initial intent behind standardized testing? So what I think what folks automatically gravitate to with standardized testing is the is folks believe that that is the only way that you can measure achievement right academic achievement that's not that wasn't its intent at all right when we go back to even nine, the 1900 when the college entrance examinations became common right the college entrance examination board was established first examinations were administered in nine subjects in 1901 the goal was not to measure academic achievement the goal was to measure mental capacities right now keep in mind that at this point right in the early 1900s you again you you have folks who genuinely believe that black and brown folks their brains are smaller right all of the dog whistles that we still in some ways hear today right like we hear it a lot today still there's folks who believe that black and brown folks are are, are dumber right they're stupid or all these things right so here it is you're administering these tests to to one prove to yourself that you're right, right? Even though you're not even taking into account the trauma that 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 these folks have experienced, the fact that for a long time, they weren't even, for a long, long time, and again, not just in the 1900, but as we start to go to 1905, when they start to, when you started to focus on quantifying intelligence, right? You're talking about folks who one, were not given the, the, the permission to learn, were not given the opportunity to learn, were victims of trauma, repeated extensive trauma, and people are using standardized tests to prove to themselves that, oh, you know what? We were right, white people are smarter, right? And so the intent was that, the intent was very much to continue to demean black and brown folks. And the intent wasn't so much to measure achievement as it was to measure mental capacities. So is this the only way that white supremacy shows up in standardized testing, just to reaffirm uh, pre-existing racial beliefs? Or racist no, beliefs, right? Yeah, so I mean, I th so I think here's what I think here's what you see. I think the way standardized testing is written is is is, is utilized to to reaffirm white supremacy, right? I think the fact that that it took it took years years for actual accommodations to be put in place for folks who maybe needed more time on tests, right? Who maybe needed a calculator when they were doing when they, when they were doing math exams, who maybe needed chances to opt out of certain exams because again. If, for example, I, and I, I came from a school, I mentioned earlier in my introduction that I was a program manager at an underperforming school, but I came from an underperforming school in, in, in junior high school and in junior high school and elementary school, right? So I come from an underperforming school. I come from, that's a school that's under-resourced. That's a school where it's one teacher for every 29 students, right? So there's no way I'm getting the individual attention that a kid three blocks over in a super white area is getting, right? So how do you think that's gonna show up on a test, right? So standardized testing in and of itself was created to uphold white supremacy. And as the years have gone on, right, when we've seen the new standards used, right, when they started to use standardized testing in U.S. military service, right? So now what do you do? Now you're keeping black and brown folks out of, out of U.S. military service because they're not passing these exams that you're, that, that, that you're using. 
intelligence testing started to become mainstream in the early 1900s. Then standardized testing started to just really take a grasp in the fall of the 1920s. And all of that is done in order to uphold white supremacy. And we see it in, we see it in everything, right? For me, I, so I took the SATs in, in 2003. I took the SATs in 2003 and I got a 1185 out of a 1600, right? And I remember even in my school, my super urban high school in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, a school that was alternative because they didn't believe in regions testing, although midway through like their inception, they had to start using regions testing. And folks still looked at me as if, as if, you know what, well, you could have done better, right? And because you were measuring my achievement to a standard of a student who was getting all sorts of resources and all sorts of individual attention, and I wasn't getting that. So even that, even, and, and we're talking about, these are, I had, you know, African-American teachers, Asian teachers, Latinx teachers who were upholding those same standards. So we're talking about from 19, from the 1900s, when you're using standardized testing to measure the intent, the, the intelligent, the intelligence capacity of folks, right? To now, even in 2003, when I have teachers who look like me still saying, no, I think you could do better. It absolutely is, is used to uphold white supremacy. Now, you mentioned something very specific that I want to go back to around even the phrasing of the questions. Could you give us an example? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So one of the so I I remember this was so I have I have, I have a couple of friends who've gone on to be uh, to be attorneys. Right. And so, you know, again, obviously, and they'll tell you straight up the LSAT is probably the most frustrating exam that they ever took, right? And, you know, again, you have to take that in order, you have to take that and get a, a high enough score to be able to get scholarships into law school because law school is incredibly, is incredibly expensive, right? So one of my friends sat down and, and she went to Pace, Pace Law School in New York. And she said to me that when she sat down and took the LSAT, there was a question that she received that said, it was, if, if Johnny is presented with, choice X and choice Y. Why is choice X the more acceptable choice, right? Now, keep in mind that when you look at a question like that, it is assuming two things. One, it is assuming that we have the same objective meaning of what, a, what acceptable is, right? And two, it assumes that we're operating from the same, almost from the same premise of, well, I would do this. It doesn't take into account the fact, for, and I think the question had uh, you know, is it is it ethical for Johnny to steal bread, or is it better if is for to steal bread from this store, or is it better if he just asks somebody for money and pays for it? Right now, if I've struggled financially my entire life, right, if if I have I have just absolutely clawed my way to this point, me as a person who's gone through that, I understand why Johnny has to steal the loaf of bread, right? So for me, that's acceptable, right? But for a person who comes from privilege, who's never had to do that, of course, that's not acceptable for you. And that's an example, again, even as we're adults, right, even as we become professionals, right, when you look at the LSAT, the GRE, right, and I'm, I'm incredibly, I, I'm incredibly blown away because I never thought I would see the day, this is 18 years after I graduated high school, where you would see uni whole universities wave entrance exams, right, they're waving the GREs and they're waving, law schools are waving the LSAT. I never thought that would be a thing because I firmly believe standardized testing is by far the most prominent form of professional gaslighting you could ever go through as a person who's trying to better them better themselves and having their worth attached to how you do on these on these standardized exams. Man, that's nothing but a word. I remember being in in high school and just the amount of pressure that was put on us. And I, I went to an urban, I'll just say a, a black high school in the city yeah. of Detroit. 
And sure, it was one of the quote unquote better schools, but as far as like equity goes, like we weren't receiving the same resources as some of like our suburban neighbors. And so that was always the measuring stick. Like, how are you lining up to the Groves and the Sea Homes and, right. and those right. Cranbrooks? And it was like, they're receiving dollars that we're not, you know, they, they have books that are new and, you know, I'm still putting the, um, the book covers on my books to protect them. Like, like, no, there, there's a difference. And I think having those conversations, especially in administration, like, I wonder what those conversations look like, especially right. if they weren't saying like, oh, this is, this is the, the score for your school as opposed right. to this is the score that they got. And you, right. you didn't bust out a 28 on the ACT. Right, right. Well, and I mean, and, and also you got to think about it, right? You're you're, you mentioned a really good point about these conversations on the administrative level, right? How many black and brown folks are at the table when those conversations are happening, right? Mm -hmm. So so think about the times, right? So uh, there's these two psychologists, Joshua Aronson and Claude Steele, who researched how the additional stress of negative stereotypes about students of color and their intelligence manifests in lower test scores, right? So say, for example, right, you know, and I, I have two masters and that's great. You have your doctorate. That's great. Right. But the amount of people that look like us that have those letters after their name aren't, there's not a lot. Right. I think it's like 33% of, of folks who hold post uh, postgraduate degrees are not people that look like us. Right. So that means that at the table for these administrative conversations, right. It's not people that look like us. And when we talk about the negative stereotypes about students of color, we also have to talk about the negative stereotypes of administrators of color, right? Because there is this fear, right? And again, when we talk about gatekeeping, because standardized testing is a form of academic gatekeeping, when we talk about gatekeeping, we're talking about also that too, because if you believe that 18-year-old me cannot do well on this exam, right, then psychologically, you're not going to teach me the same way you would teach, you know, Jerry from Riverdale, right? You're not going to teach us the same way, right? So then not only do you not teach us the same way, but now guess what? Now I've gone through my professional life knowing that A, you didn't give me your best as an educator. And now when it comes time for me to want to apply for it, now say I did everything in my power, right? Because you believe that all students can in fact improve their performance through hard work, even though we know that that's not true, right? So this assumption that we all have the same chance through the, through the same level of hard work to be successful, we know it's not true. But now say I've taken that into account and through through every ounce of my being, I have somehow managed to get to this point where I have two masters and I now want to be an administrator at a school, right? You're gonna look at my resume and because you need to confirm your negative stereotypes, which were already apparent when you didn't teach me the same way, you're not gonna hire me as an administrator. And now you've lowered the pool of how many of us are making these decisions for these students. Because I, again, and I, follow, I followed you on Twitter for, for a really long time, you've made, you've made this point repeatedly. I can't change who I am as a man of color. I am who I am when I step into these rooms, right? And so this notion, I think, you know, that is that is that that folks use standardized testing to breed inside of us a, a, a feeling of inferiority, a feeling of we won't amount to that. And then we carry that with us for the next 12, 13, 14, 15 years through college, through graduate school to then sit in front of our computer and apply for a job that we know deep in our hearts we're qualified for, but because a teacher told us that we weren't gonna amount to something because of what we did on a test 15 years ago, that, that's, how, that's how that trauma follows us, man. And, and I think it's not talked about enough because I think the focus is rightfully on like, okay, well, how do we make sure that students can do the very best they can, right? And I get that, 
But if we break children, we are going to spend so much more time trying to fix adults. And that's just not the way for us to do any kind of equity work in this field. You're taking me back, man. <laughs> I, I recall Rachel, my, uh, my senior year in high school, my yeah. AP English teacher, like I remember I, I got accepted to Morehouse and I printed out the acceptance letter and I like mm -hmm. taped it to my shirt. And she made a comment. It was like, oh, you got into Morehouse, but you didn't pass such and such, like some test. See? See? Like, wow. And she was she was a, a woman of color, which I, I'll mm -hmm. never forget. It was like, wow, like you, of all people, are telling me yeah. these things. And I still think about that, you know, every once in a while where it's like, oh, you know, you face some some rejection or denial and you're just like, oh, it takes, it takes me back to 17-year-old James and like, oh, yeah. yeah. All right, let's let's get back on track, right? So yeah. thinking about, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, what are some of the decisions that have been made or the outcomes that are a result of these test score gaps, right? So you, you have the standardized test, which we already know is, is rooted in white supremacy. There's racialized differences in the scores. What kind of decisions are being made on that? Yeah, so, well, I will say that ironically, right, if Black and Latinx students started to perform as well as their white and Asian peers on these tests, then the tests would be meaningless to colleges, right? Because you could no longer use them to differentiate among among applicants. So that's, I think that's a thing that when you, when you realize, like, think about how many times, for example, I'll use your example, the example you used, because as you were talking, I was transported to 17-year-old Dalbin and being told, like, oh, so you only got into that school, right? And this is after I got an 1185 on an SAT thinking like, man, that's great. And this is after being told like, oh, you know, you could have done better and wow, you only got into that school, right? So think of the language that is used. But the decisions that are made, right? I think one, you're deciding <clears throat> on, an, on, an, on, a, on an individual student level, you're deciding who's getting, uh, who's getting these really good financial aid packages that can afford to then go to these schools, right? So imagine like you've worked really hard for four years and your only hope of going to a, to a really, really good school is if you get a really good financial aid package, right? But because you didn't do as well as you could have done on an AP English test, as well as people think you should have done on an AP English test, then suddenly you don't get the extra five to $10,000 that you could have gotten that would have helped making you go to this school easier. That's on the individual level. On the policy level, right? We're talking about these are the folks that are deciding, well, okay, if Morehouse is, in fact, I'll tie it into a current policy, right? Think about how long over the last about year and a half, two years. So the the last year and some change of, you know, the last guy's administration, um, how long state legislators were fighting uh, and they were fighting on the federal level to have HBCU funding restored. And the arguments that were being used against that were, well, they don't really prepare students as much as they should. Look at their test scores, right? When the reality is HBCUs, and I've always wanted to go to an HBCU. Like I, I want to get my doctorate at some point. And I, I've told folks, I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm going to go to Howard to get my doctorate because I, I want that experience, right? Um, but you have to think about it. If I'm, if, if, if you're using an antiquated white supremacist tool to measure academic success, and all you're focusing on is the achievement gap, you're not taking into account the context it takes for this student body, say this cohort right here, okay, what did they overcome to get to this point where they're now enrolled in this school? What are we helping them to unlearn about the way that they learn, right? Because again, 
most folks that are coming to HBCUs, it's it's usually right. And again, I've heard this, so I'm I'm using this anecdotally, but I've also done focus groups at Howard. I've done focus groups in, in you know in, in in different schools around the country. What you hear from folks is the reason they chose to go to an HBCU is because of a terrible experience they had at a predominantly white high school. Right. And they're like, listen, I couldn't I, I couldn't wait to get out of here and be around folks that look like me, folks that understood what I was going through, folks that, you know, wouldn't try to touch my hair when the word out natural. Right. These microaggressions that students that look like us go through every single day at predominantly white institutes. The other part. And when you look at standardized tests, standardized tests only serve for only serve one purpose. Right. And again, they're a tool for white supremacy, but they're big purpose for folks who make education policy is that they are trying to use that to justify the achievement gap, right? The achievement gap is no longer a, a an appropriate metric for academic success. What is an appropriate what is an appropriate measure for academic success is the opportunity gap, right? How are we preparing kids for post-secondary opportunities? Because you know what? Not every kid is going to go to Harvard and that is okay. That has to be okay, right? So when you talk about what decisions are being made, it's not just at the individual level how much money we're giving this kid. It's on the policy level. Like, okay, we're going to hold up funding to these schools that, you know what, are doing away with standardized tests because at the end of the day, they're making sure that these kids are prepared for a life after college where they can live the, their lives to, to, to the best of their ability. So it's, it's those kinds of decisions. And I think whenever we talk about tackling any of these issues, right, and I firmly believe that the racial achievement gap is a civil rights issue, but... I can't fight that civil rights issue with an antiquated tool. None of the tools used to measure achievement in this country are, are valid anymore because they are all built through white supremacy. Mic drop. So you, yeah. you <laughs> yeah, you've mentioned if we were to do away with standardized testing, yeah. there would be no value to our uh, higher education institutions. What is some of the other resistance or barriers from moving away from this this assessment? So I will say so here's so and I've I've advocated for this even on in our county level. I think that because there are some kids who I think do really well on tests, right? Who just I mean are kick-ass test takers, right? There's other kids who just tests give them anxiety. They just, you know, they they've just had really bad experiences with tests. I think we need, I think what we need to do is look at students as a whole, right? So one of the things that we have here in Montgomery County is called Be Well 365. And what that is, is that that measures the entire student as a whole. So not just how they do academically, but how they do, you know, social emotionally, how they do, you know, with electives, how they do in, in things that are not just this 45 minute test that you took. In fact, there are out of the 26 high schools in Montgomery County, 11 of them don't do final exams. 11 of them don't do any final exams at all, right? Because their belief is that they can get a better picture of the student just by looking at them as a whole. To answer your question, the resistance comes from folks who've always done it a certain way. And I, I, want, I want to highlight just how much privilege that is, right? Like I'm thinking of your story, right? I'm thinking of the, the, the teacher who said to you, well, wow, you got into Morehouse, but you didn't pass this test or you didn't pass this class, right? That's, and I, and, and, you know, I say this to my, my black indigenous, you know, people of color. I say this to, to all of us, there's privilege that we carry with that too, right? Because what we say, what we're saying when we say that is, well, I did it. So you should be able to do it too, right? Like I jumped through hoops, so you should too. And that's not the right way for us to think, but I think that leads itself to some of the resistance you're seeing, right? Because there's folks who believe like, well, you know what? 
I did well with standardized testing, so why can't you, right? So, for example, in New York, the, the, they, they have been trying for years because they have proven that the standardized testing used by the Stuyvesants and the, and the Bronx Sciences of the world are, at, at their absolute best, are racially tinged, at their absolute worst, are racist exams, right? Because for so long, those schools were only, were only enrolling East Asian students, right? And, and they were enrolling students who could do well on these exams and not even, like one year, I remember Bronx Science admitted four African-American students. Out of an incoming class of over a thousand, they enrolled four African American students. And then what started to happen is that we were seeing that African American students were doing really well on these exams, and they still weren't admitting these kids, right? So again, some of the resistances, a lot of folks believe that I did well, so you should be able to do well too. The other, the other, I think, level of resistance comes from pure old racism, man. I think it is just flat out racism that folks believe, you know what? The system works the way that it works. My kid isn't having anything taken away from that. So I'm good, right? Is this innate selfishness that comes from the privilege that real, hardcore, pure, uncut racism brings? Because if for 20 years I've worked on policy, right? Say I am, you know, I'm, I'm a senator who has never really had to work to earn their seat. And I've been able to essentially use my power to draw boundaries and refuse reforms and all these things. Clearly, I've been making $170,000 a year. I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams. And my constituents are happy. So why on earth would they think, you know what? Let's redraw the boundaries. Let's invest resources into these underperforming schools. So when you talk about what the resistance is, man, I think it's one, like the teacher that told you that, because I think there, there are, at times we are our own worst enemy, right? There are people that are part of our struggle who believe that the closer they are to white supremacy, the better off things will be. And then you have the folks who pull those levers who love nothing more than to have people that look like us so they can say, you see, I'm not racist. Look, look at this person while they're pulling the wool over our eyes. So I think it's it's a commitment to the systems that have that have worked for them, uh, just mixed with some pure, good old fashioned racism. Terrible combination. Yeah, terrible, terrible. It is not a it is not a whiskey sour. I'll tell you that it is not a whiskey sour. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk solutions or at least propose solutions, because I imagine there's there's different ways that we could tackle this. But how do we start with addressing at least the racial bias in standardized testing? So I'm a big believer in I support, you know, schools that use what we call similar to what we did in grad school. And I'm sure, you know, and, and you did for your doctorate, right, like research projects. Like I'm a big believer in capstone projects. I think that that will eliminate the racial bias, right? Or not eliminate, that will curb the racial bias, right? Um, because I think if I'm measuring you on just the work, right? And say throughout the year, right? I've seen your growth as a student and I'm able to track how well you're doing now, right? Then there is no reason why when we get to the end of it, I'm suddenly failing you because you didn't meet this arbitrary mark, right? So one of the things that they did in Oakland was they launched these common rubrics that ask schools to evaluate their students, right? And what they do with these rubrics is you receive scores on them and you can clearly see where you need to improve in order to cross the threshold for passing. It is spelled out explicitly, it is spelled out intentionally, and there's no questions, right? Because I think that shows one that we're holding every student to the same level, to the same level of work. We're asking you all to do the same thing. Folks also don't like to hear this, but we have to we have to get rid of some of these racist teachers, man. Like I and, and again, folks don't like to hear that because it's like, oh, well, what we're putting people out of work. I'm a firm believer that one, you cannot be a teacher in this environment right now, in the year 2021, 
and have racial bias. You cannot be a successful teacher and do that because as we've progressed, right? And again, I'm 36 years old. I graduated high school 18 years ago. The world has continued to become even more diverse, right? And when we talk about white supremacy, which you, you, you mentioned this before, right? And where standardized testing comes from. A big fear of white supremacy is that they believe that black and brown folks are going to do to them what they did to us. And they're going to chain us, we're going to chain them up and put, you know, and take them away from their homeland and do all that stuff to them, right? When the reality is all we want to do is we want to be left alone, right? We, would, we want to live our truth and do as best as we can and all that stuff. Part of that means, right, because when we talk about when we talk about standardized testing, it is hard to talk about standardized testing and the role of education policy in standardized testing without talking about Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board of Education, we wanted our we want we didn't want to integrate the schools, right? We wanted our schools to have the same resources as the white schools. Federal policymakers said, nah, you know what? We're gonna mix it together. That's what we're gonna do because it's gonna cost us more money to give these communities, you know, communities of color more money, right? It's just gonna cost us more money to do that. We're just gonna integrate them. Not taking into account that racist white folks were gonna be resistant to change, that you were putting young black and brown students, their lives in danger, right? So again, not thinking about the impact of trauma, right? On these students. You figured they would just work it out, right? That's the assumption that they would work it out. You Some of those teachers that taught in the in you know or that or that some of the some of the some of the kids who were in school with you know with the ruby bridges is right and the little rock nines of their time they're teachers now man those they, they were they were there trying to burn ruby bridges's hair off and now they went off to teach students that look like ruby bridges and so i think you have to make it easier for for specific school districts to root out racism in 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 in, in their staff i think you have to hold uh, schools accountable, right? Because too often, and I'll tell you this, even here in Montgomery County, right? Even here in what folks will tell you is a liberal bastion, it's a progressive stalwart place. Over the last year and some change, because the pandemic has laid bare a lot of the inequities that existed long before, but now because these kids have nothing but time and opportunity on their hands, they can tell you about them. We had students create over 35 Instagram accounts where they shared stories of teachers being racist to them, right? Teachers, law enforcement in schools, uh, support staff, all being racist to them. And we came back to school now and those people still have jobs. There was no accountability. So you have to hold schools accountable when they do not create a safe environment for our schools. Because one of the things that I, you know, you had mentioned this when we were talking about my, my introduction. I'm very intentional about the work that I do. I am a firm believer, right? When I, when I first, when we first found out we were going to, we were going to be parents, Everybody told me, you know what, Dalvin, it takes a village. If it truly takes a village, then what are we doing to create the healthy villages that it takes? And there is no healthy village. Racism rots villages, right? And you see that in schools, you see that in communities, you see that in the use of tools that absolutely are built on white supremacy, the continued use of that, the refusal to change the way we do things. And so I think it's that, it's rooting out racism from a front line, because you know what? You can find teachers, right? You can create, grow your own initiatives like they did in Oakland and in Texas, where they were able to enter partnerships into lo with local universities to hire teachers that went to their high schools and went to their colleges and became certified teachers. And now they're coming back to teach in their communities. That You can do that. There's ways to get around that so that way students do not have to be subjected to intentional violence every day they go to school. Say we have to keep tests yeah. of some sort. Yeah. What does an equitable assessment tool look like? So I think I think one an equitable assessment tool, you know, very much captures the entire student experience. Right. 
So say, for example, I am a student who learns through art, right? Like I'm just really, really good in art. So my assessment tool should include that because that's something that I'm doing well in, right? And I think we have to look at things from a strengths-based perspective. Whenever I have meetings with any, with any students, any family, I love to come at things from a strengths-based perspective, right? I believe in a growth mindset. I do not believe that every student that I do not believe that every student is doomed to stay where they are and, you know, no amount of work is going to help them. But I think we have to rethink what that help looks like. Right. Um, and when you look at equitable assessments, it means capturing the entire student, what you're good at. Also, the things that you want to get better at. And notice, notice I didn't say the things that you're bad at, because I think that is a terrible way to look at it. It's what are the things you want to get better at? So, for example, when I was a teacher, I had a student who wanted to get better at research skills. He was not very, he said it himself. He was like, listen, Elizabeth Osario, I do not know how to look up citations, right? That was a struggle for him. And it's funny because like now, as I just finished my second master's, like I had somebody ask me like, oh, what'd you think of the APA format? I was like, I hate it. I was like, if I never have to look up another citation again, I'll be thrilled. But it made me think back hey. to this that I taught, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and, but he was very honest. And a kid will tell you, man, a kid will tell you straight up, like, listen, I do not like math. Math is something that I'm not good at, right? And then when you start to ask them, well, why aren't you good at math? They're like, oh, well, you know, I tried to ask, I tried to ask my dad once and my dad, you know, he told me that I'm never going to use math again, even though math is probably the one thing that you, <laughs> that you use consistently when you're out in the real world. But it has, we have to be intentional about the language we use in our assessments. We have to be able to use the things that our students do well at and use the things that they want to get better at so we can use that to challenge them. I think the last part too, and this, again, you'd hope that it didn't take a countrywide, worldwide pandemic, right? But we have to include the social emotional uh, part in, 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 in an equitable assessment because I've, I've worked with kids, man, who have sat here and maybe they struggle to write, you know, an essay on, you know, the Iliad, right? Maybe that's something they struggle with. But they're a student that's really good at conflict resolution and they're always the one that mediates conflicts with them and their friends. Why, why, if I'm truly using an equitable assessment tool, why wouldn't I capture that? Why is that rendered irrelevant? But the fact that they couldn't write about the Iliad is the thing that I'm holding up to really show their worth academically. I think we have to get back. We have to get to, not get back, because I don't think we've ever done that. We have to get to the point where we're measuring the entire progress of the entire student. And that goes way deeper than just academics. I think that's how we get to an equitable assessment tool. Now, you, you invited the parents in, so now I've got plenty yeah. of questions. Yeah. What does parental involvement look like? Or how, do, how does parental involvement make a difference in this? Like understanding we're, we're parents of color, therefore, yep. and we're also with the privilege that it brings, educated parents of color. Yep. So how do we ensure that parental involvement um, can serve to, to remove some of these barriers? So it's huge. I'm, I, like, I'm a big believer in the only way that we are going to create the relationship between the school and the community that is needed for everybody to be successful. And, and I use the word successful a lot because I firmly believe that success is subjective, right? What's successful to me doesn't necessarily have to be successful to you, right? Like if I, you know, say I was working with, you know, student X and student X said, man, I really want to create a YouTube channel and monetize it, right? Like, Okay, that's your version of success. I'm going to help you do that. Uh, with the parents, I think it's also similar, right? Because so I've worked with unaccompanied refugee minors, right? And I can't tell you how many times I got called to a high school, right? So we so after an arduous journey, super tragic, 
just the the absolute worst journey from Central America to the United States, being in a in, in an immigration cell for months, right? They finally get a sponsor, like an uncle comes, they get them, we get them placed, all that stuff. We enroll them in school. Then summer breaks and they go to work and then they don't come back to school, right? And I've been called from schools like, hey, you know, I'm a mandated reporter, such and such isn't going there. And I get that, right? But I sat in the courtroom with that child when his mom was on the phone saying he needs to stay there because if he comes back, they're going to kill him, right? Imagine me talking all this good talk about parental involvement and parental voice and et cetera, et cetera, and me not honoring that truth, right? Like there are parents who do what they absolutely have to do to make sure that A, their kids are okay, right? Whether that means working three jobs and hiring their and moving their parent in to be the living nanny for their baby, right? Like they do that. If it means working overnight, you know, three days a week on the weekends in order to make sure that they can pay rent, like all of these things. And those experiences have to be a part of this discussion, right? The 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 faith-based institutions that that are in communities, they have to be a part of this discussion, right? Because again, I've I've had parents who've lost loved ones, right? Especially during COVID, man. So many people have lost loved ones, right? Especially during COVID, a faith-based institution, a church, a mosque, a synagogue, that's what got you through it, right? That's what got your kids through it, right? Because they were able to connect with other kids who were also grieving because they lost their, their grandparents, right? And now you come back to school and you want to have an IEP meeting and you want to bring your pastor with you. And I tell you, no, for that, for that, I don't ever bring for that. I would have never talked about parent involvement because when I'm accepting of a student, I'm accepting of the parent as well. And I'm accept, and I'm accepting of the community that's helping to ensure that this student is successful. I've had kids who and, and I used to when, when I was a school therapist, I was in, in Capitol Heights, Maryland, PG County. And I had kids, man, who now it was a level five school. Right. So it was kids from all over the district, Virginia, Maryland, who there, and you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes, whose current schools could not handle their behavior, right? So they sent them to us. And what would happen is they would leave on the, they, they would be dropped off on the school bus. Then at the end of the day, they would go home and they would get into fights with each other, right? Because they were kids from the community. They would fight with each other and then come back the next day. One had a black eye, you know, whatever, whatever. They wouldn't fight in the school. They would only fight in the community. So what happened? We started to bring in their parents, right? And little, and then we had parents who like who parents had long-standing beefs from years ago, and their kids were just continuing their beefs. But imagine if I dismissed that and was like, "Oh, that doesn't matter. Like this kid's just being a troublemaker." What kind of what kind of I, I firmly believe in equity, right? Everybody gets what they need. What kind of person would I be? What kind of just a believer in social justice and education justice would I be if I didn't acknowledge that truth? If I didn't acknowledge that, you know what? This is your reality. This is the reality that you're trying to learn in, right? It makes a world of difference when I can call a mom and say, you know, hey, Mrs. Mrs. So-and-so, uh, you know, Ryan told me that you lost your job. We're going to send you over a gift card, right? That makes a huge difference, right? Because now I'm not just calling you because your kid did something bad. And you have to keep in mind, these kids that get to these level five schools, right, whether it's high school or junior high school, down here it's all high schools, but whether it's, you know, level 75 school, a district 75 school in New York or whatever, these kids that got there, they didn't get there because their parents said, yeah, you know what, like, I can't handle my kid, let me send them there. That's not how they got there. Something happened along the way, right? And it's our job as, because you mentioned this, right? We're parents. We have the benefit, the privilege of being educated parents. We also have the benefit and the privilege of being professional parents, right? Like we're at these tables. So how on earth can I, after everything I went through to get to this table, suddenly forget where I came from and say, you know what? No, you just need to suck it up because I did. Because now I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere better than the teachers that I had that told me that, 
So I think that's, it makes a world of difference. If you can get buy-in from the community, and I mean the whole community, then suddenly you're on your way to creating those healthy villages that I was talking about. I plan on saving this for a future episode, but my wife and I had to shake the table with uh, yep. <laughs> with my uh, son's daycare. I mean, we're, we're talking yep. five years old. And yep. I've mentioned previously, my son is on the spectrum and the <laughs> rules that they were putting in place as far as like disciplining him. Yeah, ableist as hell, and I and yeah. I called him yeah. out on it, and it's like, oh, you know, we have this diversity team that comes and gives us lectures <laughs> on inclusion. I'm like, I'm not even trying to hear none of that. What I'm telling you right. is the consequences that you're putting in place for my son's behavior without me even having a chance to like address them. Not gonna happen. Like it, it was to a point where he would leave the room, right? Like he mm-hmm. and they. It turned into a game for him because now he's looking at you and you're chasing after him and he's having a ball and he left the room and quote unquote, nobody knew where he was, but a teacher found him upstairs. I mean, it's a safety issue and we were definitely concerned. For sure. And they turned it into, well, you know, if you can't find someone who can sit with him during class, we're going to have to like remove him from the daycare. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Give Give me a week. So mm-hmm. I can get on the phone and articulate my words in a way that yep. are yep. thorough, but you understand yep. what we're saying. And I and I called him out. I was like, you know, this would be very different if my child was neurotypical, if yep. I could give him yep. the rules, what happens when you break the rules. But you literally gave me one day yep. and expected me to just come in the next day and everything be cool. No, I, I pulled my son the same day. like, And I pulled his brother too, because they're, yep. they're not going to subject them to an environment where they're not safe straight up and i think also like so i've worked with kids on the spectrum right and i one of the things that always stick with me right is that it is a game right like it is like if you see me chasing you why wouldn't you think that's a game you're five years old and there's things so i'll I'll tell you this story so here in montgomery county um there was a five-year-old boy in us in a Silver Spring Elementary School, who was having a bad day, man. And he left the building, right? He left the building, five years old. Now, I will say this, you know, and shout out to my mom, because my mom, when I was younger, my mom wouldn't let me go to like people's houses or anything like that. Even when I was like 16, she was like, nah, you're not hanging out with that person. You're not hanging out with that person. And I now understand the worry that she has being the father to a three-year-old, right? Like, I understand it now. I didn't understand that. I thought she was just being a pain in my butt, but like, no, I get mom, it. Mom must be knowing, man. Yeah, moms know, right? Moms know. And now you know this as a, as a, as a dad, right? Like, so I grew up without my dad, right? So for me, um, like, yo, I love my daughter, right? I'll do anything for my daughter, right? And I feel it in my stomach when something doesn't feel right. So this five-year-old kid runs off. They call the cops, right? Body camera, fo- body camera footage is released. The cops berated this five-year-old boy. Oh, I mean, I mean, just called him all sorts of stuff, told him that he was a criminal, said that like, oh, you know, I hope your mom lets me hit you, whatever. Five-year-old? Five-year-old, five years old, man, five years old. Now, again, I have a three-year-old, right? I'm a firm believer in diplomacy is me sending you to hell in such a way that you ask for directions. If you ever, ever think that you're going to do that to my kid, please understand that, like, all the letters after my name don't mean a thing to, to for us to get to this point, right? And so I think it's interesting because even the conversation that they had with you, man, I'm going to tell you, like, that's based in white supremacy too, right? Like in the, oh, 
if you can't find somebody to sit with them. And because you know why? Because that means that whenever they've had a kid on the spectrum, that's how they've solved it mm-hmm. is they found somebody to sit with them. Right. But you know what? I've worked with kids on the spectrum. They don't need somebody to sit with them. They need somebody to understand that they're just learning a little differently and different doesn't mean wrong. Right. And so like, I I'm, I'm blown. I, I get blown away when I hear this stuff, but I also know that it's our job, right. Being in these rooms that, that again, when we talk about the origin of standardized testing in 1900, they did not envision us being in these rooms, changing policy. They didn't envision that. They thought that these, that these rubrics that they put in place to measure our intellectual capability were going to keep us from those rooms. And so whenever I go into these rooms, I think about kids who I've worked with on the spectrum who were labeled troubled, right? When all it took was me sitting on the floor with them coloring on the wall and suddenly they were solving math problems, right? That's all it took. Or what it took is me speaking to them in a soft voice because you know what? That teacher probably raised her voice too much and, and the, the noise bothers, bothers their ears because their ears are sensitive. You know, and so I and so I think it's it's mind boggling to me. And and I can tell you, I can count on one hand the amount of times I've seen a white kid on the spectrum be labeled troubled. I can count on one hand. But I always see it for black and brown kids who, who are on the spectrum or who have ADHD. Right. And they're suddenly they're the kid that's tapping their pen at the table and they're being disruptive or whatever. I see it all the time. And it's and it's a joke, but it's because it's based on a, it's it's based on a model that rewards white supremacy and white privilege. Whew. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I will say to you, brother, I see you. Um, and even on this podcast, if you ever need an ear, ever need an ear, I am here. Okay. As a, as another father, because that, that stuff breaks me. Right. Because I remember I used to be the kid that they used to call my mom and say, well, he distracts everybody. And you know why it was? Cause I was bored. Bored. I yep. was bored. <laughs> the work is boring. <laughs> the work was boring. So, yeah, I would sit there and I would doodle or whatever. The work was boring. But I can't tell you that, right? Because, you know, you know everything. I can't tell you that. You know, my mom used to tell them that. My mom was like, he's just bored. Give him something to do. And they're like, oh, but he needs to keep up with the work. And she's like, well, did he do the work? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, so I see you, brother, and and I hear you, and I am here for you. And I genuinely genuinely mean that. I believe it. I believe it. I used to get in trouble for not showing my work. I oh have, yeah, all the time. Right I got the answer right. It's <laughs> like you didn't show your work. Why? Why do I need to take these extra steps? Right. Here's the here's the answer. Right. Yeah. So then, what do you need the rest of it for? <laughs> right. Right. So, is there anything else that we should be thinking about or considering as we talk about standardized testing? The directions that we 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 have opportunities right yep. into the future. What else is there for us to to linger on? So I think I'm a big believer in policy spaces and don't allow great to be the enemy of the good, right? Um, And I say that to say that like, so for example, like I'm a firm believer in student loan debt forgiveness, right? However, (laughs) I'm a firm believer in that if we make it targeted and forgive loans of folks who are earning under six figures, I think we'd do a hell of a lot more damage. I think we'd do a hell of a lot more damage than waiting for the perfect student loan uh, proposal to forgive all debt, right? I also am not of the belief that I need to forgive your debt if you went, if you're making, you know, a quarter of a million dollars, I don't think I need to forgive your debt. I don't think I need to do that. Um, and you're like, you know, and you're making your payments on time and all that stuff and you, you're practically paid off. I don't think I need to forgive that. But I use that as an example because I think too often when we get into policy spaces, we think, well, you know what, if we can't get everything we want, we're not going to get anything. I think that when we talk about reforming the education system, you look at the role that standardized testing has played over, you know, from 1900 till now, 
there's going to be a hell of a lot of resistance. I can deal with good faith arguments, right? Like, and I've had, I've had folks, I've sat at table, tables with folks who are like, well, you know, could we use some tests, right? But not have that be the only thing. And when I asked them, I said, well, what kind of tests are you talking about? They're like, oh, you know, like, like for example, for math or statistics or something like that, right? And my argument is always, okay, but will you include accommodations for folks who need them, right? And the answer is always yes, because I gave you something, now you gave me something, right? Now we've created something that's a little bit more equitable, right? Now imagine if I had gone into that meeting and said, no, you know what, you need to give me everything I'm asking for. You need to do away with all these tests entirely, then we're not going to get anywhere. So I do not let the great be the enemy of the good. I think, too, also, the biggest thing is, what is our end result, right? What are we looking to do? And, and you know, and, and having this conversation with you and then following you on Twitter and, and all that stuff, our goal is to create a more equitable school system, right? More, a more equitable education system. That is our goal. So how do we get there, right? And we're going to have to get there in a way that's not, that's not only realistic, that's not only time-oriented, but that's sustainable, right? Because I remember the very first protest I went to was I was 17 years old and I was protesting because New York City was cutting their, their, their school budget in half and all the cuts were coming from teacher salaries, all the cuts. This was in, this was in 2002, all the cuts. And we marched on City Hall in, in Manhattan and then we went to Albany. And, and, I, and I still remember, uh, you know, there was a representative, we had uh, you know, mothers of the movement with us and there was a representative who when he found out that they were with us would not meet with us, right? Why 18 years later, you're 19 years later, now that I was 17, I'm 36 now, why 19 years later are we still fighting the same fight? And what that tells me is that part of the reason we're, fight, we're still fighting the same fight is yes, you know, the races have continued to be here. But the other part of it is, is that I think we've allowed ourselves to lose sight of these incremental wins, right? And I'm a big believer in every, in order for us to truly be progressive, right? We have to make some progress. Some progress has to be made. We can't just constantly spew rhetoric and say, well, you know what? Like, this is what I want. Oh, I'm not going to get any of it. Then forget it. I'm not doing any of it. That just doesn't, that doesn't work. And especially for folks like us who we got to remember 60 years ago, we weren't even allowed to vote. Right. So here it is 60 years later. Right. We've made some progress. Now we need to make more progress. I'm not going to throw out the progress we've made in search of this unicorn. I'm gonna acknowledge the, prom the progress we've made and then try to go a little bit further. Education policy is no different. Standardized testing, folks will tell you, has to have a role to play now. Okay, I'll, I'll acknowledge that for you if it means that you acknowledge that it's going to have no role in the future because that's also the reality. As we get to more automation in the workforce, right? The real test isn't going to be how you answer two plus two. The real test is going to be, can you input the data into the spreadsheet? And that's a task-oriented thing. That's not a knowledge-based thing, right? Like, I can learn how to do Excel spreadsheets. That's not a knowledge thing. That is a task thing. If I do it with enough repetition, I'll learn it. So I think we need to look at things from a, what is our end goal, right? And how do we get there in a way that's realistic? Because I'm a big believer in pragmatism. I'm not going to sell people a dream and say, you know what? In five years, nobody's going to use standardized tests. Although I will say, I think that we are closer to a world that does not use standardized tests than we were 20 years ago, right? Because again, kids have shown us, especially during this pandemic, 
that they can do this work and do this work well without the pressure of standardized tests. But I think it's that. I think the biggest lesson is do not allow great to be the enemy of the good and be realistic about what the end goal is. And I think if we do that, I think we'll continue chopping at this tree and eventually it'll fall and we'll create that equitable school system we're talking about. Hey, a man for the future. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Because you know, my daughter's three. Your 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 baby your your baby boy is five. Can you imagine if by the time they're graduating high school, they're they're doing a podcast together talking about this? Like, oh, what's the role of standardized testing? Like, clearly, then something went wrong. Something went wrong over the, over the next you know thirteen to fifteen years because we missed something. And I think I think the reality is that in order to get the future we want, we have to have the audacity to work for that. And that's the thing. Too many people want the title, not enough people want to do the work. We got to be willing to do the work. Ooh, that's another episode. That's another we got to be willing to do the work. <laughs> now, how do people keep in touch with you, the, the folks who want to do the work? Yeah. yeah. So, again, like I said, I am I'm currently the chair of the Montgomery County Police Advisory Commission, so I do a lot of work around policing in the county. I am also the advocacy chair for, for the Montgomery County Council of PTA, so I do a lot of work on parent advocacy and advocacy uh, in Annapolis in the state legislator. Um, I'm also a program manager at the Collaboration Council. You guys can follow me on Twitter at DA underscore Osario. I wrote a piece on policing for prison reports a few months ago. I also, you know, wrote about collective trauma during the pandemic for well and good. Um, I'm a social worker and I, I'm going to leave folks with this, man. Get therapy. And I say that in it, and I say this as a licensed clinician. My DMs are always open. I do not charge folks for therapy. If you ever need an ear, please feel free. Because here's what I've realized: our people are carrying the weight of collective trauma, right? But for a long time, it was the collective trauma of those that came before us, right? For you know, it was the assassination of MLK and Malcolm X. It was, you know, what happened to Emmett Till. Emmett Till's birthday was just the, you know, the other day. And, and I look at his picture every year that it's his birthday, right? But what's happened over the last 10 years or so, we've begun to carry our own generational trauma, right? And what I will say is you need folks, you need folks that build community with you to hold your hand through that stuff because then we can break that cycle. And that has to be the goal, not just for us, but for our kids, right? So our kids don't carry that trauma with them, right? I tell my daughter I love her every day, every day, right? My mom was so busy trying to protect me, she could not tell me that, but she showed me, right? But she could not tell me that. So I tell my daughter I love her every day. That's my way of reshaping the cycle. So that way, when it's her turn, it's her turn to take it to the next level get you some therapy. And my DMs are open at DA underscore Osario. I will not charge you for, for, for a session because I think, because I think we need each other. And that's, and that's, I think the biggest thing we need each other without each other. Like a we turns, you know, a, a we'll change things, right? We will change things. I won't change things, but we will change things. Well, Delvin, it's been insightful in many ways, a lot of reflecting, as, as we're recording, just thinking back on high school, even college, preparing for grad school, and just the ways that we're trained to believe things should be. And yep. being grateful now in a space where I'm, I'm questioning everything because everything should be questioned. Like, what are the roots of this? Where did they come from? Why is it still here? Why haven't we evolved it? And so, Thank you for, for challenging me to think about that, especially as we're talking about standardized testing today. 
Absolutely. And, and I, I'll, you know, I, I think we do not say this enough, but it, it comes from love, right? Um, there are things that I've learned to challenge when folks that look like me say, you know, but did they have to say that to you? And you know what I realized? I've never asked myself that. I've never given myself permission to say, well, that wasn't okay that Miss McHugh in third grade made fun of the fact that I didn't have a full set of crayons and couldn't color in my book report. Right. And so it's about that. It's about us growing each day because again, everybody wants the title, but nobody wants to do the work. Hey, on that, we'll close. Thank you, brother. Absolutely, brother. And look, I, I meant what I said, man. Like I, I have extensive experience, like, you know, with, you know, IEPs and all that jazz or whatever. And sometimes having an outsider who isn't connected intimately to it um, can help. But I also know that I'm telling you, I can count on one hand the amount of times that I've heard, oh, well, we'll just get somebody to sit with them. And it's viewed as like, a, oh, this is OK. <laughs> this is good. And then right. the other times where it's viewed as a punitive, punitive thing. And I. I, I always tell parents like, and you know this because clearly you read them the riot act. It's like, yo, you're not you're not gonna single out my kid like that. It's not gonna be that because because yeah. I know what you're trying to do. And and again, these kids, you know, they carry that stuff with them. I'm telling you, I had a I had a third grade teacher straight up had a book report due. We had we didn't we only had two crayons in the house, so I used two crayons to color it in. And she, I mean, she made me feel like shit. That to the point that when I graduated with my master's in social work, I sent her a card. She was still at my elementary school, and I sent her a card. Cause she told me I wouldn't amount to anything. Right. She was like, she was, she was, she was like, how, she was like, how are you? What she said, she said, how are you eight years old and you can't follow instructions? How do you ever hope to be anything in life? So I sent her a card when I graduated my master's, and I said, I just so you know, I turned into something. Right. Good for you, man. You, because, but but like again, right? Like that's not healthy for me to do that. But you know what? You earned that. You deserve that. You deserve me reminding you of that because that's that's what it is. They are, we 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 carry that stuff with us, brother. It's hard. It is hard and it beats us down and we don't realize it until somebody else tells us that they went through that. And then we're like, oh, shit. Like, that's what I went through, too. You know? Yeah. It's unfortunate. So many of us have gone through it, too. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. You're a hundred percent right. Of course, I want to give a huge thanks and shout out to Dalvin for, for hopping on the pod um, as a bit of a, a spur of the moment episode in the sense that it was it was random when I thought about it his willingness to hop on um, and just authenticity in our conversation, realizing, you know, there, there are moments of, um, don't want to call it isolation, but when you feel alone in the work, of course, but there's also moments as a parent where I feel that same kind of sentiment, um, especially having a child with special needs. There's, there's not as many supports out there as people claim there are. And so just, just huge shout out to Dalvin also want to give a shout out to the the soon to be uh, Dr. Joshua McNeil, who we were having a conversation a few days ago, and he sent me the link to Stakes is High because he knows I'm I'm not the biggest De La Soul fan, but I am a big Dilla fan, obviously coming from the city, and that inspired the the title of the episode. Obviously, Stakes is High, because when you think about it, the stakes are high, right? You put the pressure on students to perform to excel to achieve and when they don't meet that particular expectation they, they feel like they failed and sometimes it's hard to recover from that and so the stakes are, are high but as Dalvin pointed out in today's episode the tool that's being used to measure your abilities and success wasn't made for you and so 
go circling all the way back to the beginning of the episode when I shouted out um, my, my cohort members in Delph, a lot of us talked about this feeling of imposter syndrome, this feeling of, do I really belong here? This feeling of, how did I get here? What um, ways did they make it acceptable for me to be present? And what I want to drive is recall and remember the standard and the tools that are typically used for competency, for achievement, were not made with you in mind. And the fact that we continue to show up, we continue to thrive, to excel, to put other people in positions for success, that that is the true meaning of achievement. That's the meaning of leadership. And we belong in those spaces. So for folks who are listening to this, especially my cohort members, that gym is for you. But it's also for those out there who are preparing for college, who prepare for grad school, prepare for that doctorate program, whatever it may be. Think about what it took for you to get there. There is no shortage of obstacles or barriers that you've encountered. You belong exactly where you are. And so that that's my JB note for the moment. I want to bring your attention to the fact that we are wrapping up the month of June. We're about to speed through the next few months, and I've got a surprise for folks. So I mentioned that I'm not quite sure how I want to extend the life of the Equity Matters podcast. I feel like it's run its course. Like we've we've done what we set out to do. We've made it very clear that equity is not the same as equality. We've made it clear that you can achieve equity in a variety of spaces and sectors. I want to take it to the next level. I want to dig a little bit deeper. While I was in Greenville for the ASTO conference, the final session was around structural racism and policy. How do we advance policy to eliminate structural racism? And of course, that's my jam, right? I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm eager to hear what people have to say. The conversation was well, it was necessary, but I wanted us to go deeper. I wanted us to get into the weeds, into the thick of things, and one thing that I'm often challenged with, aside from this notion of calling in, is this notion that you attack racist policies, not racist people. Now, I'm not going to physically attack anybody, but I think it's fair to say that racist policy typically comes from a racist idea, which can only be held by a racist person. So we have to get rid of both. So you get rid of the belief that one group is superior to another and you eliminate the person who put that in place together. Like it, 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 it has to happen together because that's how you start to change behavior. Otherwise, the root of the idea is still there. And, and that's that's broader work. But getting back to how I want things to keep going going forward, I've got this idea. And now that I'm saying it out loud, that means that I have to do it. Somebody has to hold me accountable. I don't know who it's going to be. It's going to be somebody who's listening to this episode and say, James, you said you were going to do this thing. So do it. So I've got this idea that I am going to drop in the next mm, next few months a podcast mixtape. What the hell is that? Well, a podcast mixtape. It is literally going to be six or seven episodes within one broader volume. And so I've got it 
mapped out in my head. I just need to do it. So somebody in between episodes, shoot me an email. If you know me personally, send me a text. If you follow us on social media, this is a plug at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram and at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. Send me a message and say, how's that podcast mixtape coming along? Otherwise, I'm just going to let it slip through the cracks. No, I'm kidding. I already started making the graphics for it. I've got the titles mapped out. It's going to be good. We're going to dive deeper into topics that I feel we only get at the surface. Um, It's going to be good. So be on the lookout for that. I don't have an exact timeline for when it's going to happen. Just know it's going to happen. I don't have much else as far as updates goes. This go round. As you know, we do have trainings available with the Cummings Graduate Institute. We have the implicit bias training in addition to a community engagement training. The last one on there, um, we're putting the finishing touches on is unmasking white supremacy and racism and mental health. Now, I'm surrounded by a lot of mental health practitioners and clinicians. Shout out to the Fab Five. Um, many of us are therapists. And we talk often about kind of the challenges it is, that exist, not only as a practitioner, but also as an administrator and also as a uh, consumer seeking services when it comes to the barriers that we encounter. And in many cases, you can trace that back to some form of, of racism or white supremacy. Go to the Cummings Graduate Institute website, check out their continuing education. Very soon, unmasking white supremacy and racism and mental health will be available. It's a two-parter. So the first part is why are we here? Where we dig into the history, we talk about drapetomania, we talk about the fact that um, pharmacies and other large companies thought that targeting black communities as being violent and aggressive um, would, would stir certain behaviors and, and it did in the wrong way. And then in part two, we dig into what can we do? Because if there's one thing I hate about presentations, about trainings, is that we get stuck on the why are we here and we never talk about the actions to solve things because there's always things that we can do. There are always steps that we can take. So stay tuned, continue listening. I'll be sure to let folks know when that training is available. I know we're putting the finishing touches on it. All of the videos have been recorded. We just want to get it in the database and give it a few uh, tests just to make sure things run the way they're supposed to. And shout out to CGI just for, for being dope. Um, for following us, for for reaching out, and we've established this relationship. Um, big fan of their work. I'm not going to hold you all. We'll talk very, very soon. Be on the lookout for next month's episodes. Make sure you're following us on social media. Take care of yourselves, folks. And of course, you know, equity matters. <laughs>